Good morning, church. What a blessing to be with you guys today, even digitally like this. It is such a cool thing to come together and worship, especially on Easter Sunday, where we get to come together and celebrate the truth of Christianity, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead for you and for me uh, to, to invite us into his kingdom, into his family. So I know you're all at home, uh, but let's just do this because it's Easter and we gotta. He is risen. And I'm gonna assume you all said he is risen indeed. Hopefully by this point, your kids are all in some kind of sugar coma from the Starburst jelly beans. You're in some comfy jammies, you got some coffee, and we're ready to jump in. Uh, Cause it's Easter and, and, and we're gonna go hard. So in the beginning of our time, we read from Matthew 28, the resurrection story. And I am stoked for us to talk about this. Matthew 28 represents the absolute pivotal passage of all of the scripture. In this story, a man who was very clearly and thoroughly dead ceased to be dead. Jesus rose from the dead, literally and bodily, in real human history. This is the absolute promise of the Christian tradition and of the Bible. Jesus was dead, killed unjustly for our sins, but by the power of God, he was raised again. And this beloved of Jesus changes everything. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, I mean, come on, it's Easter. You, you gotta give me a little bit of credit for just some, some pastoral energy. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. We're gonna um, lay out the central story of the Christian faith out of Matthew 28, which we already read. I'm gonna point out just a couple contextual and cultural points to kind of give some weight to this story in ways that we might initially miss. And I think this will all lead us to a very specific truth that God has for us today. Then we're gonna look at some of Paul's teaching to the church in Corinth, and we'll end our time out by taking communion. Hopefully that sounds good to you because uh, that's what we're doing. So remember, the resurrection is the culmination of the entire gospel story. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the book of Matthew that we read it from, or even the four gospels. The resurrection is the culmination of the entire gospel story that God has been preaching and teaching through the word, starting in Genesis, leading up to where we're at and going all the way through to Revelation. I, I See, I know a, a bunch of us are trained kind of in evangelical world to, to think of Bible stories by zooming in on specific passages. And it's easy for us to forget about kind of the larger meta-narrative of scripture. But it's important to remember, um, this is one Bible preserved for us and given to us by one God, and it tells one story. So this may seem a little elementary for some of you guys, but, but stick with me. I, I want us to walk through this and make sure we're synced up on this truth. Chapter one of the gospel story of scripture is the beginning. And that's essentially this idea. We, God exists and he is pre-existent. He made and sustains everything that is. Everything in all of reality, physical and non-physical, exists at the will and pleasure of our God. He made humanity as a special creation set apart from the rest of the universe. Humans bear God's image, and as special creatures, they were designed to live eternally unified with him. But that takes us into chapter two of the story, because the reality is sin broke the perfect universe that God made. 
Mankind has chosen to sin every generation since Adam and Eve. From then till now, you inherited that same sinful nature and you and I have both chosen to sin. This sin breaks relationship with God, breaks the perfection and union that he designed for us. It brought with it pain and death and the curse and it essentially broke and killed God's perfect world. But, and this is chapter three of the story, the amazing thing is that God was not content to allow the curse and sin to have the final word on his perfect creation. From the moment sin entered the picture, going all the way back to Genesis three and the first sin, God immediately started to promise that he would fix what sin had broken. For generations, God continued to reach out and connect with his sinful and broken creation. He continually reminds us of his promise to fix what sin has broken, and he progressively builds more and more relationship and intimacy with humanity, culminating in the person of Jesus. When Jesus enters the scene, this progressive promise finds its fulfillment. Jesus is God in the flesh. God literally dwelling amongst his people, flesh and bone, face to face for the first time since the garden and since sin entered the world. Jesus goes around doing miracles and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. It's finally here. God is doing something new. The old is gone. The new has come. And, and by the way, this new thing that Jesus proclaims, this kingdom of God, it is his death and resurrection and ascension. We're going to talk about this today, but, but this was an absolutely new concept. No one expected brutal death and resurrection and ascension to be God's plan to restore what sin broke. But such is the kingdom of God. It is upside down and it subverts our expectations. Jesus's resurrection inaugurated a new era between God and man. Jesus's death paid the penalty for sin that we brought on ourselves, and Jesus's resurrection breaks the bonds of death and promises us a resurrection like Jesus's. Death is no longer the final word on humanity. We can have the eternity that God originally designed us for. And this will ultimately be realized when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. And those who are in Christ, who've received his salvific work, will be resurrected unto perfect eternity with him. And those who have rejected Christ will be resurrected unto eternal judgment from God. That is the gospel story in a nutshell. And our text today is the hinge point of that story, of the whole of scripture, but it's also uh, a very specific scripture in Matthew. So let's, let's jump back away from the overarching narrative of scripture into the actual story that we're looking at. So remember, way back in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus challenges his followers, and through this interaction with Peter, Jesus finally publicly acknowledges and accepts the mantle of Messiah. Jesus acknowledged his role as Messiah, and there were all these 
deep cultural expectations that immediately began to be at tension with Jesus's ministry. From the moment Jesus says, the cat's out, like this is it, the cat's out of the bag, I'm the Messiah, everyone is ready for him to march to Jerusalem and rally an army and overthrow Rome. But Jesus is continually teaching over and over and over, that's not how this Messiahship is going to work. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. That's how this is going to work. And that tension back and forth of what the people are expecting versus what Jesus is promising he will deliver builds the closer and closer they get to Jerusalem. And it's important to remember that the Jewish people in this day had a deep cultural expectation that their Messiah would literally and physically free them from Rome. This is their identity and history as a people. Their primary cultural identifier is that God freed the people of Israel from oppression in Egypt. And even in the relatively near past, they can look back to all these seasons where God would raise up Messiahs, our anointed leaders, who would rally the people and throw off their oppressors. Just 150 years before Jesus, the Maccabees raised up and rallied the people and threw off uh, the Jewish people's oppressors. And so when Jesus claims this title, that's what everyone is getting rallied around, including his immediate followers. You look at the expectations of the 12, the men who had been with Jesus from the beginning, who had heard his intimate and secret teachings, who had seen everything. What they're ready for is for Jesus to rally the people and raise an army and throw off Rome. In fact, the first time Jesus begins to tell them that as the Messiah, he's going to suffer and die, Peter steps in and says, no, you won't. That's not how it works. This, this level of tension is, is there and it's building the closer they get to Jerusalem. Jesus makes no illusions. He keeps saying over and over and over, this is not how it's gonna work, guys. This is not what you expect. But the people simply don't hear it. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter that Jesus is telling them exactly what he's gonna do. The people were convinced that Jesus was A, the Messiah, and the Messiah would rise up and free Israel from Rome. When Jesus didn't do this, when he didn't live into this script as was expected of him, the crowds immediately turned on him. See, the Jewish leaders already desired his death, but when he lost the favor of the crowds, his fate was sealed. Jesus was then strung up on false charges and paraded through a joke of a trial and condemned to a torturous traitor's death. He was beaten and whipped and tortured and crucified, and finally, he died. And basically for everyone, this death on the cross ended the ministry and the importance of Jesus. His followers abandoned him. They turned tail and ran the minute things got hot. The crowds forgot him. The Jewish leaders did their best to bury his legacy, and Rome itself was as indifferent as it could be. The only ones who cared, the only ones who continued to care after Jesus' death were a couple of Jesus' secret followers and a couple of women whose lives Jesus had changed. See, these two men took his body off of the cross and gave him a decent burial. They took and gave him a tomb to actually honor his legacy. And these few women who, who had not abandoned Jesus, 
They followed him all the way to the cross. They stood by him as he suffered and died. And when he was buried, they resolved to return after the Sabbath and give him the honor he deserved in his death. By the way, very few people talk about this, but I feel like the women in the resurrection story are kind of these unsung heroes. They're the only followers of Jesus who actually stuck with him. When everything fell apart and everything was brutal and he was being tortured and dying alone, there were these few, these couple women who had followed him from the beginning, sitting with him unto the moment of his death and continuing after his death to seek to honor him. Now, by the way, this is really important for us today. These women, as much as they loved Jesus and they stuck with him and they wanted to honor him, all they wanted to do that morning was honor Jesus by anointing his body and setting up some kind of shrine of remembrance in his tomb so that his body would be allowed to stay there and not displaced in the future. This was their plan, and by the way, this was all anyone expected. Resurrection was on nobody's mind on Easter morning except for Jesus. Immediate bodily resurrection was not even a category for the Jewish people. Jesus had been saying this for months, and while the Jewish leaders had noticed Jesus' strange teaching regarding bodily resurrection, no one else did. And the reason is just because this wasn't a category in that day. Now, don't mishear me. The Jews believed in resurrection, or at least many of them did. The Pharisees made it one of their main theological pillars. But this was not a resurrection like Jesus's that we see on Easter Sunday. The Jewish idea of resurrection was at the end of days. And whether or not it was a bodily resurrection was debated amongst the Jews. So no one was looking for a resurrected Messiah, much less a crucified resurrecting Messiah. Jesus had failed. He had died and his thing was over. One commenter said it like this, if your Messiah went and got himself crucified, you could die with him, you could make some sort of shrine to honor his tomb as he awaited resurrection, or you could just go home and find yourself a new Messiah. And this is what we're seeing with these women. Jesus's ministry is over, but they're going to have one last time of honor and worship with him. To, to respect the work he did and the way that he had changed their life. But, beloved of Jesus, God's kingdom is upside down and it subverts our expectations. In other words, it didn't matter what these women's plans were on Easter Sunday. God had different plans. See, when they arrive, there's an earthquake and an angel and a road away stone and an empty tomb. These, these women walked into the most unique experience in all of human history. You know, it seems like every few years, ever since that Da Vinci Code movie came out, there's some article or book or documentary about the secret facts behind Jesus' resurrection and all the stuff no one knows and how Jesus' resurrection is just copying all these other pagan myths about resurrection and this and that. Um, you know, whatever, that stuff's fine if you're interested in it, but just so you know, that's malarkey, all right? Jesus' resurrection, the Easter story that we're looking at, is a totally unique thing within human history and within religious experience and within theology. 
Jesus rose from the dead bodily, physically, historically. This was unique and this was new and this was unexpected. Look at how these women engaged. The truth of Jesus' resurrection changed everything. When they meet Jesus, they are full of joy and fear and worship. And, and that makes sense. They have no category for what they're experiencing. Jesus was dead. And if anyone had the authority to know Jesus was dead, it was these women. They saw him killed. They didn't run away. They stood and watched the gore. They watched the spear pierce his side. They watched the blood and water flow out. They heard his agonized cries when God forsook him. They knew he was dead, and yet here he is talking to them. So they freak out. Joy, fear, worship, all mingled together into the same beautiful, amazing experience which if we think about it for two seconds, makes total sense. When was the last time you went to a funeral and ended up hanging out with the person whose funeral it was? This is not how life works. You don't, people don't rise from the dead. It's not a thing that happens. And so when it happened, no one had a category for it. This is totally outside normative human experience. And yet, and yet, Beloved, this is our promise. This is the Christian message. This is the hope. This is the thing that brings us to worship, that draws us together, that makes us family, is this promise and this truth. When Jesus meets with his disciples, by the way, it's the same thing. Joy, worship, doubt. They're experiencing it and they're still doubting it. It's easy, right, to, to read that last passage of Matthew 28 and look at the apostles seeing the resurrected Jesus and doubting and go, how could they doubt they're talking to him? How could they not doubt? He got killed three days before that. People don't come back to life when they die. If you knew a friend of yours was not just killed, but brutally murdered, and then three days later he asked you to go get breakfast, even if you saw him, something in your brain would be going, this isn't how it works. This isn't right. Something's not right here. But this is the amazing thing. This is what happened. Jesus did rise from the dead. His heart stopped beating, his blood stopped flowing, his brain went dead, and his body lay dead and decaying for three days. And on Easter Sunday morning, his heart started beating again, his blood started flowing again, his lungs started taking in air again, his brain started transmitting signals again. He was alive. And this isn't some abstract spiritual experience. This is a real bodily physical, historical resurrection from the dead, and it is crazy and unbelievable. It's why the women were scared. It's why the apostles doubted. It's why people to this day avoid this truth of Christianity, because it's crazy. That doesn't happen. People don't raise from the dead, but beloved, Jesus did. He did. And that changes everything. That truth changes everything. It changes how you experience and go about every facet of your life. This truth, the historical, real, physical event changed all of human history. 
changed everything for you, everything for me, here and now. And you are invited to experience the same freedom, the same life, the same resurrection, and the same eternity as Jesus himself. Come on. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. This is how we're going to wrap out our time this morning. I'm getting too rallied up. I'm going to get kicked out of this building if I don't calm down here. Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he uh, helped plant. And this church was struggling with a lot of different stuff, and, and Paul's challenging them on different things. But they had also sent him some theological questions. And one of their biggest questions centered around resurrection. Basically, as soon as Paul left Corinth and went on and continued his ministry, people started sitting down and going, wait, do we, do we actually literally believe in a resurrection? Like people actually raised from the dead who, who were dead and they start, because that's crazy. And Paul writes in part of this letter, response to that question. We can read that response in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start in verse 3 here. And Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. You see this? This church asks this really reasonable question, by the way. Hey, Paul, are, are, are you serious about the resurrection thing? Like, that's actually a thing for us? And Paul's response is not, not even terribly gracious. He just digs his heels in and says, look, that's the gospel story. That's what I received. That's what I gave to you. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he rose again in accordance with the scripture. And he went and he saw many witnesses, myself included. Do you, do you see this? Paul calls witnesses. He tells the church, look, people saw Jesus after he raised from the dead. And a lot of them are still alive. You can go check. This is wild. <laughs> It's wild because, A, Paul is so convinced of the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection that he's willing to call witnesses to the fact and challenge this church to prove him wrong. But, B, because he's so concerned with the reality of Jesus' resurrection as the hinge of the gospel message. As you continue to read through chapter 15, what you read in verse 14 is this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. Paul is looking at this church and saying, guys, look, if you don't think Jesus literally, physically, bodily, historically rose from the dead, then let's not waste our time. That's what this whole thing is about. God conquered death for me and for you. If you're not on board with that truth, then you're not on board with any of this. If that's not our deal, if that's not our foundation, if that's not our fundamental truth, then we're wasting our time. Beloved, this is so important for us today. On Easter Sunday, the church celebrates. 
We sing loud. We wear bright colors. We give our kids sweets. We pray. We jump. We eat good food. We feast and we celebrate because on Easter, we proclaim that God beat sin and death and the curse and he made a way for us, yes, us, yes, you and me, to have life in eternity like we were actually designed to have. Beloved, we have all chosen sin. All of us. We chose this curse. You and me. We sin and we sin often. Sin is in our bones and our DNA. We chose this curse. But God made a way for us. Our sweet Jesus, our King, King of the upside down kingdom made a way for us to have life and to have freedom. Praise be to God. He is risen. And in the end of Matthew, Jesus commissions his followers. Do you see this? You and me, not, not just them. He commissions his church to go and proclaim this amazing message and this amazing invitation. We go and we make disciples and we teach them about this Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection. And, and, and by the way, I love this. He is with us in this endeavor. The text says in the end of Matthew that this is what Jesus does. He died and he rose again to the glory of God for the salvation of you and me. And he goes out to seek and save the lost. And we are invited to participate with him in that work to call the dead to life alongside Christ until he comes back. Until the end of the age. And the reason we're invited to do that and the reason we get excited about doing that and the reason we challenge the church to participate in that mission is one simple truth. Guys, it's true. He is risen. Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. This is truth, the most fundamental truth of the human experience. And this is our life. Look how the Corinthians passage continues in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. Beloved of Jesus, this is our gospel and this is our message. This is our treasure. This is our eternal life with him. Praise be to God. He is risen. Amen.